0: This is a conversation on blackness, Japan, and Afro-Japanese identity with Warren Stanislaus, a PhD candidate at the University of Oxford and an associate lecturer at Rikkyo University in Tokyo. Our conversation today will be both historic and theoretical. Warren is able to use his expertise to guide me and listeners through a history of Afro-Japanese encounters how these encounters shaped Japan's perspective of blackness and black identity, and how the global black diaspora, from figures as varied as W.E.B. Du Bois to the Wu-Tang Clan, have looked at Japan as sources for inspiration, solidarity, and collaboration throughout history. With the rise of global superstars, like Naomi Osaka and Roy Hachimura, who are Afro-Japanese, along with the global rise of the Black Lives Matter protests that also occurred in Japan. These issues have far more relevance than most people consider, and Warren is at the forefront of researching these fascinating topics. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog at the Arts of Travel podcast. We have interviews with thinkers, educators, writers, and activists from all over the world. And for more conversations that are written as well as articles, you can go to our website AsiaArtTours.com. Here's my conversation now with Warren Stanislaus on blackness, Japan, Afro Japanese encounters, and the global implications these topics have. I hope you enjoy our chat today. Play us-
1: Hello, my name is Warren Alexander Stanislaus, and I am currently a PhD candidate at the University of Oxford in Modern Japanese Transnational and Intellectual History. And I'm also an associate lecturer at Rikyo University in Tokyo, uh, where I'm currently teaching a course in Afro-Japanese Encounters.
0: So what I always find very useful for uh, scholars is to frame them as human beings. I think a lot of the times, you know, after two or three books get published or uh, after uh, someone receives a prestigious post at a university, it's easy to remember that, you know, scholars are just like uh, you and me. They just, uh, they have their motivations and sort of their emotional reasons for why they uh, oftentimes begin their academic journey and, and where it leads them to. So for your field of scholarship, could you discuss a bit of sort of your Personal journey and um, particularly for um, the the types of languages that you're trying to really become fluent in uh, Mandarin and Japanese, which are quite difficult um what's what's kept you going i guess what's inspired you and what's kept you going through what to be honest is is a difficult field of of scholarship
1: I think a good way to kind of approach it is by firstly saying, I actually really um, admire the work that you're doing, Matt, um, at uh, Asia Art Tours. And kind of your core mission, I was reading up on that, of of helping travellers to interact with Asia on a deeper level beyond kind of an orientalist consumption of the strange and exotic. And I think that that mission is something that really kind of resonates with me because in many ways that kind of defines my own personal journey um, from my first exposure to Japan um, and Asia and to to where I'm at now. So if I can just go into that a bit. Um, So yeah, I think like many of my generation uh, as a teenager in the mid-noughties growing up in South London, it wasn't really an image of Japan as number one Um, that attracted me to the country. So when we think of Japan as number one, Ezra Vogel, this industrial and economic super powerhouse of the the 80s, in fact, for me, it was more Japan of its lost decades of economic stagnation, Um, but a Japan that was emerging as a soft power superpower in the form of Japanese pop cultural content. So like anime, manga, urban youth culture and fashion, and it was those type of things that led me to Japan first in 2006 on a gap year kind of volunteer program. And then after that in 2007 as a full-time undergraduate student um, at ICU in, in Tokyo. And I've, since then I've lived in Japan for, I guess, over a decade now, both as a student and professional. And, and so this trend of young people pursuing Japanese studies or learning the language um, it, kind of motivated by pop culture or images of Japan as this fairy tale land, or maybe in a more contemporary context, we can say an anime land. I think this is a trend that that was um, was really characteristic of when I was younger, and it's still something that persists today um, so it, I guess, like you could say, like the subculture of otaku fandom, which is mainly concentrated in local areas like Akihabara in Tokyo, are fetishized to the point that they often come to signify the whole of Japan in the minds of, of young Japanologists. Um, and I kind of give you this introduction to say that, in many ways, yeah, this represents my own continuing personal journey. A journey from this invented Japan. I think this is a quote by Oscar Wilde originally, where he talks of Japan being this uh, country of pure invention and and only really existing in the minds or imaginations uh, of people observing it from the outside. Um, And so I had this invented image of Japan in my own mind. Um, Again, this was mediated over, <laughs> over a century of images that have constructed Japan as this variously exotic oriental toyland, or maybe as this backwards traditional island dominated by loyal but mindless samurai warriors and robotic salary men. Going from a journey from beginning there to where I am today as a researcher of Japan, where I guess I'm continuously trying to critically engage with these types of representations. And so to kind of approach your question more directly about my personal journey, this is what led me to becoming a researcher of Japan, um, and especially looking at transnational encounters and trying to place Japan in a wider regional and world context, context, is that we can begin to reframe the way we understand Japan as a whole by looking at these different types of um, these kind of alternative um, critical lens, and so just as a final point on this, um, I think this is actually in many ways that one of the biggest challenges that we have as scholars and educators of Japan in in, in today's world. That uh, there's lots of talk of, I guess, Japanese studies declining um, as a popular choice of a degree programme, but because of the rise of China and the declining economic role of Japan. But actually, Japanese studies is booming in in many places. So for example, in my own country of the UK, you're seeing the highest number of applicants to this degree programme that you're really ever seeing. Uh, But again, the irony and the challenges that so many are drawn to Japan by these very images of kind of this wacky and exotic Japan, that as scholars we are trying to deconstruct, um, and so yeah, I think from from that perspective, the types of curated tours and the discussions that you have that transcend these stereotypical images of Asia and try to delve deeper into various aspects of the culture and society are really instructive to someone like me as well in the academy, trying to present a more complex view of the country and region. So, yeah, uh, that's, I would say, really sums up my journey so far.
0: It's been very interesting, my own uh, autodidactism into scholarship. One of the advantages of not being in the academy uh, is that I can hop around. Uh, There's no sort of peer pressure or um, office politics of if, okay, I want to interview someone like Warren, if I want to jump to like – uh, I Ching Wu and look at us. anarchism in China. If I want to look at someone like a Shou Kanishi, there's none of the sort of uh, uh, the peer pressure that I think really exists in academia where even if you think a scholar's full of hot air, oftentimes you're directed towards having to study that person simply because they've accumulated prestige or a camu- uh, accumulated power within that particular institution or within that field. Um Japan, a lot of our conversation today will be sort of a transnational one, um, looking at the dialogue between um, Japanese-ness and blackness. Um, but I, I have to imagine from where you started as a scholar to where you are now, where you're saying words like Afrofuturism, techno-orientalism, making VR DJs in your digital syllabus, um, you've come a long way. So I wanted to ask uh, for this question, what would be sort of a keyword of past japanese scholarship that everyone had to study regardless of if they thought it was full of hot air what were sort of the 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 compass uh if if we thought of the keywords where did that compass point in the past and for younger scholars of your generation um what would be the new sort of keywords or phrases that we're now hearing in Jap- Japanese studies? So, could you build us a brief bridge using just one or two keywords from the past to the keywords now of the present and future?
1: Yeah, I, sh- I should—I um, guess—speak to what led me specifically in, to engage in this scholarly category of Afro-Asia um, in the form of the class that you just mentioned that I'm kind of looking at um, of. Afro-Japanese interactions or looking at the exchange between blackness and in Japan. Um, And I think just before I go into those key words, I I would say that last year in the, uh, the wake of the global spread and the mainstreaming of the Black Lives Matter movement, there was this push by a diverse group of scholars Um, They submitted a petition to the Association of Asian Studies uh, calling for a commitment to combat anti-Black racism within within Asian studies um, and also to assert the centrality of Blackness in scholarship on Asia as well. And so it was within that context that I decided to um, kind of supplement my core Field of research, which is within 19th century Japan. And I'm currently pursuing a, 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 my PhD dissertation on looking at political satire in 19th century Japan. But I'm supplementing that with my own teaching practice and other scholarly research by looking at these Afro Asian um, interactions. And I think, I think before, kind of one of the big transitions which Um, I think we'll see in the future, and this is something that I'm really trying to push as well, is that while compiling the syllabus of looking at these different key moments of encounters between Black populations and Japan, it became really apparent that Afro-Asia as a scholarly category isn't just this peripheral subject of kind of curious interest or, um, or maybe... Uh, In the context of last year, we would probably look at it as maybe a tool for combating discrimination. Actually, Afro-Asia and in this case Afro-Japanese interactions are really integral to informing our understanding of Japan and Japan's relations with the wider world as a whole. And so um, just to kind of illustrate this with um, maybe some examples... And, and this is something that I talk about in a, in a recent uh, online commentary for the critical Asian studies, is that while we retell the story of the opening of Japan. So we would look at the mid-1800s arrival of Matthew Perry with his black ships um, and the role of gunboat diplomacy in the opening of Japan. We often give less consideration to Japan's encounters with Perry's black bodies, as, as I like to say, or or, or or the in the different forms of bodyguards and the minstrel performances which, which were taking place on Perry's black ships at this very same time. These kind of discussions are often ignored from this broader examination of the opening of Japan. So in other words, the role of kind of Americans... America's cultural diplomacy to foster amity and its theatrical um, pageantry to um, try and uh, encourage Japan to open up to trade in the rest of the world. These aspects of um, looking at Japanese history is is often hidden. And and so we're indebted to people like John, John G. Russell and John Dower, who've done some great work on shining light on this area. And I think by looking at these kind of alternative transnational connections, we can start to engage in uh, what um, Professor Sho at Oxford calls this need to reopen the opening of Japan um, and uh, the types of meanings that is associated to that specific, uh, I guess, event or era. so, yeah, by looking at these different types of interactions, we can start to to challenge these existing narratives that we have of history. So I guess the key word going forward is going to be looking at these placing Japan in a wider world context or these transnational encounters. I, I think those are some key words or concepts that we can think about going forward in kind of Japanese studies as a whole.
0: As someone who... Uh, is is quite sympathetic to philosophies like Afro pessimism while at the same time probably firmly being rooted in someone like a Cedric Robinson wanting to understand sort of the, the historical materialism of why anti-blackness arises uh, how racism arises um, I'm very curious in the case of Japan because it has so much overlapping history as both colonized and colonizer um, and to start through, through sort of a brief uh, journey through history, and, and then we'll come out the other side talking about the present uh, with figures like Naomi Osaka and manga like Afro Samurai, but when, when it comes to these early presentations of blackness uh, from Matthew Perry or other very formative encounters in the 1900s, what was the understanding of blackness within sort of the consciousness of uh the japan it encountered and would we start to see sort of the formation or movement towards anti-blackness from uh powers on high or was it something that was far more murky and could have gone in many different directions um at that period of history could could you center a little bit about blackness uh in the 1900s and how within a japan it might have differed radically from the anti-Blackness we would see in colonial powers of that era.
1: Just before we go into the um, maybe 1900s is we can think of maybe some earlier encounters. Um, For example, if we look into the 16th century, um, at the time when you had the Jesuit missionaries going over to Japan, and again, Black bodies were kind of brought over in association with um, these uh, missionary um, delegations variously as, as as workers or bodyguards and performing different roles. But if we start to look at some of the types of depictions we see in the, um, what are called the Southern Barbarian skulls, Scrolls from the time, um, looking at uh, maybe more in the South of Japan where a lot of these uh mission, missionaries and ships were landing, places like Nagasaki, if you look at some of the depictions of the different uh, Black individuals and also the Europeans, we don't see the same type of distinctions that we may start to see going into the 1900s when I, I would suggest that Japan started to internalize some of those more Western forms of racial hierarchies back in the the, the 16th century and, and in these scrolls if you look at these artistic depictions of blackness we see kind of a lot of uh, a sympathetic attitude towards blackness or there's not really again like i was saying there's not really these big distinctions between uh the europeans and 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 the africans who are brought alongside them they're all depicted uh, in very similar ways. Um, I think a really good example to illustrate this is how, and this is a story that is now being retold and becoming a lot more popular in today's society, the story of Yasuke, uh, an African samurai. So most likely from Mozambique, he was brought over to Japan with these Jesuit missionaries, and he was identified by... Um, Oda Nobunaga, the daimyo at the time, and, and, and he was brought into his clan, he was enlisted as a samurai warrior. And so this is really an, an amazing story of this African who became uh, a samurai. And like I said, this is becoming popular in today's society um, through a revival of books uh, there's a recent book published by um, Thomas Lockley on this, and also there's going to be a, an anime series on this on, on Netflix, I think, in uh, in this year. And um, I think this was going to be a Hollywood production as well, even. Um, and originally, it, Chadwick Boseman was lined up to to uh, star in this, but before his untimely passing. But I, I, I use all, I use this example to say that um there prior to the 1900s we can perhaps suggest that J- japan's attitudes towards blackness didn't have those same associations or meanings of um inferiority uh, for example intellectually or or um different ways in which ideas of these racial hierarchies that later in the uh, 1900s through contact, like I was saying, in this period of the opening of Japan um, and this uh, search for Western knowledge, also in that search for Western knowledge was an internalization of those um, imperial hierarchies or racial hierarchies or ideas of um, social darwinism and different things like that so i think that's potentially an interesting um way to look at it if we start to compare um previous times and then in the like i said in the uh 16th century and, and this case and then kind of look fast forward um to the the 19th century is another key moment. Obviously, there's a lot of gray area, (laughs) murkiness in between, but I think those are some good kind of key moments to try and examine to see um, this transition in Japanese attitudes towards Blackness.
0: And when it comes to that murkiness, um, something I think many American scholars are guilty of Uh, is sort of a parochialism. There's not... I mean, you're quite a rare scholar in terms of trying to bridge these transnational dialogues of uh, blackness in relation to Japan, Afro-Japanese identity, and its larger connection to um, how this would change, become murky, become sort of directed in a top-down fashion during various points in Japanese history. Is there... um, A sense, just uh, as uh, Shokanishi's work is so valuable for its history of below, is there a sense prior to World War II, so that's a very broad swath of history, of the tensions of trying to build out attitudes toward blackness or Afro-Japanese identity from above in ways that would mirror Western powers... And like uh, Dr. Konishi so meticulously documents, would there be pushback or much different interpretations or encounters of uh, with blackness from below? So could could you talk a little bit about um, prior to World War II how this might look, this sort of dialogue, anything that comes to mind between sort of anti-blackness from above versus perhaps more of a murkiness, more opportunities for uh, to push back on. The technologies of racism from below um, could could you break down some of that uh, whatever comes to mind because it's a huge swath of history, uh, but just prior to World War two what would that tension of aboveness versus belowness look like in relation to Japan's perspective of blackness
1: I think one of the areas that I find really quite interesting in in a potential you could look at it as a pushback, but at the same time, it also has its own internal contradictory dynamic. So um, I'll give the example here of ideas surrounding Pan-Asianism and Pan-Africanism. I think some of the ideas of, or the the Japanese ideas and rhetoric of Pan-Asianism, looking into, for example, in the 1930s, and these ideas of Asia for Asians and ridding um, the Asia region of white Euro-American supremacy was in part shaped by these ideas or Pan-African discourses of Africa for Africans and kind of challenging Western imperialism. Um, I want to be careful not to kind of overstate Its influence and and there are many other scholars much more knowledgeable about me in this area than than myself but in answer to your question I would say that I think for our purposes of disclosing these Afro-Japanese encounters it's interesting to explore how these I think that's the type of key questions that we can start to um, unravel and approach is that how are these ideas of pan-Africanism interact with pan-Asianism and Japan's, like I said, this innately contradictory idea of pan-Asianism, which, while Japan is ridding um, Asia of of this Western imperialism, it's also placing itself as as the imperious power within Asia. Um, But at the same time, like I said, from above being able to um, use some of this rhetoric um, that is gained from looking towards uh, some of the potentially more revolutionary um, uh, pan-African ideas or, or, or Black liberationist ideas.
0: And what I was thinking is, as you were discussing that, is you have to be very careful as well as an interviewer. It's racist to think people can't be racist. And so, what I uh, want to explore with you as well in this next question is that uh, people can be anti black without the help of white people, Um, that anti blackness or uh, uh, perspectives of racial hatred or racial solidarity. Can be developed completely outside of a, you know, a European Western Enlightenment framework, and um, I, I think that's sort of important to emphasize and explore um, in these questions as well, because I don't want it to. I think the sort of the the reverse of the white savior complex is like the white villain complex, where we blame everything on the Enlightenment. I mean, uh, we can curse on this podcast, just so you know, and I will now. You know, fuck the Enlightenment right fuck the enlightenment but at the same time we cannot i think blame everything on on how the world has turned out on um many of its faults and evils and uh how its its doctrine was carried out which again fuck the enlightenment
1: when thinking about um blackness or or, or the way um and this is again this is something that persists today but throughout I guess the 19th century um, or, and sorry, the early 20th century, if you look at some of the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois and others, there's this constant um, praise of Japan, um, especially in in the wake of Japan's victory over the Russo, uh, Russia and the Russo-Japanese War. Um, Japan became this model um, that can be replicated, and this idea of Japan being a place where black people can exist without um, w- without having to experience um, white supremacy or those um, uh, ideas that you mentioned before I, I think that 's part of the one of the challenges of looking at how um black populations have imagined solidarity with japan for example there's this figure um he, he was he's been described as one of the first shogun of japan and uh, there's an interesting story about in the uh, early 20th century how um Again, in, in one of W.E.B. Du Bois's books, he's written down as one of the most um, famous and influential black figures in history, um, this Sakuna e or no Tamura Mado. and that, And there's some other texts which talk about him in this way, that imagine the first shogun of Japan to be someone who is of African descent. Yet this isn't actually really founded in any reality um it's this person may not have been ethnically japanese but it's it's very unlikely and, and it's probably false to say that he was of african descent but i think the more interesting thing is about how again japan is imagined as this safe haven that throughout history japan has accepted blackness so in the case of this first shogun which may may not have existed and then again with yasuke the samurai He was an African samurai who is, or he was an African who was made into a samurai by um, Odo Nobunaga, one of the most famous individuals in Japanese history. There's this constant praise of Japan as being, um, yeah, like I said, the safe haven for blackness. And I think that's, again, something that persists today. Um, If you look at um, online and YouTube types of uh, interview discussions of, black people living in Japan or for those who haven't never even been to Japan when they imagine Japan, they talk about it in this very positive way as operating on different rules. Um, And I think that actually interestingly speaks to some of the aspects that you were saying um, about maybe attributing um, everything to this, um, I guess, like you said, this white villain Complex. Um, and perhaps that's something that stems from that is that then it leads to the other extreme of praising um, a country, maybe sometimes naively. Um, and I think that's one of the big critiques of W.E.B. Du Bois when it gets into the 1930s, is that he was still um, looking back on a previous Japan as this role model rather than seeing what how japan was actually acting within within the um within its sphere in asia
0: so this is an aside to your aside and that's fine it's a podcast so i can i can do whatever the hell i want um but it's very interesting this idea of i think not understanding and having to talk about you know in a in a, in a world that many scholars would argue, I think, convincingly is globally anti-Black, um, what are, if not dangers, um, what is the lack of analysis and, and how does it not lead us to freedom if we're being Orientalist? W.E.B. Du Bois, I think, uh, uh, has a long history of, of sort of a, a, a benign Orientalism. Uh, both towards Japan and later to China um, uh, China it's, it's through the scholarship of people like Itaj e. Frazier um, and I think uh, Robin uh, DG Kelly as well um, you know ha- they've documented that in the minds of many black Americans from the Black Panther selling sort of uh, uh, Mao's red book Orientalism ha- ha- has a very real component of uh, being part of black freedom struggles even to this day with the, uh, the, the, the deification of a China that's committing mass atrocities in Xinjiang. So uh, before I return to history, and we will return to the set list of questions, but I wanted to ask you as a scholar who's studied both anti-blackness and I would imagine Orientalism closely for um, black scholars or black people who do Orientalize Japan or Asia at all, what are some of the, the dangers, the problems, or, or the caveats that come with that um, that ultimately are, are not beneficial? What, what would be your sort of dialogue if, if you could have one with someone like a Du Bois or, you know, where that scholarship takes us? And why is that ultimately perhaps that type of Orientalism as black liberation a dead end?
1: I really like the way you put that orientalism as um kind of black liberation or as part of um this black freedom struggle. I, I I think um I can't really offer too much beyond what you've um really insightfully pointed out as the the potential failings of that. But I think just to um yeah, briefly summarize my view on that is that it's and it links to what I was saying earlier in my own introduction and my personal journey is that it's often this view of, it's it's an invention of another country. So it's not necessarily based on reality. Um, it's not, again, founded on um, exchange or contact or um, too many encounters. It's purely based on this kind of constructed discourse and then everything is viewed through this um, through this lens, and so even when, for example, traveling to the country um, those are the things that you will see, and everything will be begin to be viewed through this lens so I think just purely from the perspective of it not being founded in reality is where um, a lot of the the key problems lie here but that that's a really um insightful point, and that's something that i'll I'll definitely think about going forward in my own scholarship as well.
0: World War II, I think, is a useful um, period of history to look at what it means to build sort of technologies of racism in the service of the state. So during this period, there's uh, many scholars who've pointed out that Nazi-era Germany looked to the Jim Crow laws of the United States um, and America's uh, codification and structures of white supremacy as the basis for its own ethno-nationalist fascism. Um, in researching our conversation, I was not able to find a lot. Um, I'm not a, a, a Japan scholar, so I think that was a big barrier, obviously, but I was not able to find a lot about if Japan, in, in building up um, the attitudes of violence and ethno-superiority any nation needs to, to go to war in an imperialist context, I was not able to find out a lot about this. So I wanted to ask a two-part question. For uh, Japan, what scholarship are you aware of uh, that looks at if they paid close attention to the anti-blackness of America to build their own technologies of racism? And then post-World War II, when the U.S. was occupying Japan, the U.S. had a very heavy hand Um destroying and resha- destroying things it didn't like in the country and reshaping things it did. In, in what way um, for World War II, either from originating in Japan or imported into Japan after its defeat, do we start to see a more firm buildup of the racism, anti-blackness, or perspective towards blackness that exists today in the country?
1: yeah I think um in terms of uh, just kind of more generally looking at um attitudes towards race um around the world war iia yeah. i mean john John dower's book war War without Mercy is a really um good start for any kind of listeners who want to um get kind of a broad overview of um for example American propaganda and, and Japanese propaganda and shaping. Um, ideas of race. But I think um, to address your question, I'm not necessarily going to speak directly to um, your point. However, I'm going to flip it around in hopefully an interesting way um, and say and try and look at again the type of influence from above that Japan again received from blackness, in, in this case in America. And how they try to leverage that to their own advantage um, in their um, kind of rhetoric uh, surrounding the the war. And so, for example, there's been some really interesting research on how the Japanese government tried to stir up internal dissension and unrest within America by appealing to African-Americans who were experiencing anti-Black racism and obviously Jim Crow laws. Um, and so the positive Japan sentiment that w- had been built up over several decades um, among uh, Blacks. So, I mean, we've already mentioned W. B. Du Bois who is one of the key figures in building up that positive Japan sentiment. And also that feeling of African-Americans fighting wars overseas against fellow people of color for a country where they aren't fully accepted as citizens themselves it's kind of like a perfect storm for the Japanese government um and and, and also groups such as the ultra-nationalist Black Dragon Society um coming out of Japan to strategically target African Americans with propaganda to create unrest um, so uh, someone to look into um uh, um, Barrett Kushner, historian at um, Cambridge University, um, he, for example, looked at Japan's what was called Negro propaganda uh, operations uh, through shortwave broadcasts, and I think also uh, Gerald Horn, um, in he notes in the start of his book on Afro-Asian solidarity that Malcolm X during his younger and and you could say wilder Years and, and days in Harlem, he, he was also making noises about joining the Japanese army um, to avoid uh, conscription because he knew that the U.S. Uh, army intelligence was wary of this pro-Tokyo sentiment among um, African Americans. And so, a- again, what I uh, I I'm, 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 I'm say this to to try and I guess flip the equation to uh, in thinking about Afro-Japanese encounters um how has japan not necessarily looked to um these technologies of violence from um white supremacy in in america or europe but has looked to these forms of or ideas of black liberation um or a struggle against um racism um as a part of their whole um their um their war mission as well i think that's that's an interesting um potentially alternative way to look at this era and consider it as well
0: to bring that to the present then in a way we can center it with youtube videos and tiktoks and all this scholarship warren that's that's boring that's passe we need to we need to be citing our TikToks. We need to be citing our memes. And um, obviously for the the Black Lives Matter movement, as we've already discussed at the start of this conversation, that was really global. And it was reflected uh, in Japan in ways that I think were very uh, powerful and interesting in terms of the scope and nuances of the solidarity offered. So Um, I'm wondering for the conversations you've had with your students from your own observations as a scholar on these issues, what were your thoughts um, on how Black Lives Matter manifested itself in Japan? Did you feel a sense of sort of it being connected to a larger global solidarity? And then for my own pet interests, which are more radical, did we see any of the more radical language of the protests, abolishing the police, uh, abolishing whiteness, in this case, I guess, japanese What What was the, the sense of what was actually on the ground happening in Japan in relation to Black Lives Matter? And for the more radical threads, were there anything interesting that, that caught your eye as these protests and solidarity events were happening?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think potentially I mean as with everything the view that you may get in for example the media especially the foreign media reporting on this and how it's maybe some of the realities on the ground there's potentially gaps between (laughs) between the two um but I think the first thing to kind of mention is that yes there were demonstrations across major cities in Japan um and they were actually named marches rather than protests. And this is in accordance with some local laws around um, kind of uh, delineating what, how you can name these demonstrations. And in Tokyo, it was around 3000 people um, marching around central Shibuya area. And then in Osaka, I think it was about a thousand uh, people was reported and yeah, while this is, I guess, significant um, in Japan, because we very, at least in contemporary society, we very rarely see these large demonstrations. I think from a global and comparative perspective, I'd be careful not to overemphasize, um the size or implications of um, these marches. So I actually had the opportunity to go to the um, Tokyo protest or... So um, marches, I mean, um, as I just explained, um, and while there were many Japanese participants, actually, there was a visible international majority. Um, so Americans, Europeans. And so and people had banners that reflected many of the chants that you would hear in the US, like no justice, no peace. And there were other banners that tried to link what was going on in America with a Japanese context. So they were saying um, Nihon ni mo ga aru, or racism also exists in Japan. But I think that the marches and the way it's been reported in the Japanese media, it's clear that the issues raised by the Black Lives Matter movement don't broadly resonate with the Japanese public and it's really seen as a foreign issue something that happens over there and and not here Um, so yeah you do have the role i think the role of some japanese celebrities was quite important in maybe linking it to a japanese public so you have uh, people like watanabe naomi um, Rola, who's a a model mizuhada Kiko, who's another model, and Miyavi, a musician. Um, the the last three that I mentioned, I think they're mixed Japanese as well. Um, uh, Miyavi's, I think he's uh, of Korean descent, and Mizuhara, Kiko, and Roller um, are also mixed Japanese uh, uh, as well. But I think they spoke up about the Black Lives Matter movement on their social media platforms to try and raise awareness of it. But again, it's just talked about in the context of, well, this is uh, an issue in the West, not in Japan. Um, Another example of that is uh, Nigo, a famous fashion designer who regularly collaborates with black hip hop artists such as Pharrell Williams and Kanye West. He produced a t-shirt range Saying Japanese solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Um, but again, I, I don't think this is, this example in Japan is nothing like the type of solidarity that maybe we can begin to see reemerge in the US with slogans like um, Yellow Peril for Black Lives. Um, what I would say is, just from my observations, perhaps the most interesting development is how young internationally mobile and mixed heritage Japanese people are using new media and social media platforms to discuss these social justice issues. So if you look on Instagram, um, there's several accounts that produce these savvy bilingual infographics um, that raise awareness about um, racism, gender inequalities, mental health, and other issues like that. And Black Lives Matter um, really heavily featured as a part of this and, and I guess in that way it's quite uh, I, I mean I use this term lightly but it's quite revolutionary in Japan to have these types of discussions targeted at young people in Japanese um, and social media has really um, enabled this and another example of new media is the platforms like platforms like BuzzFeed Japan Huffington Post Japan and ID Japan they've done several articles or video interviews with locals around these issues of the uh, the black experience with Japan or highlighting unconscious bias and so now you're starting to see these uh, Japanese language publications new media social media talk about these and trying to engage with young people Um, and so I think that's that's been quite a big impact and shift. But again, I don't want to overemphasize um, the, the impacts because it's it really is largely dominated by, I would say, affluent and internationally mobile young people in Tokyo. And so I'd be hesitant to say it reflects um, the broader population in Japan who... I would argue, still have this feeling of an indifference and just really this sense that, yeah, this is an American or foreign issue.
0: Japan, you know, I've alluded to it throughout this conversation, there's very obvious examples you can find of, of anti-blackness. So you can find uh, in, in very recent times, blackface, you can find cultural appropriation in ways that I think, border on um, uh, minstrel in terms of how uh, uh, tropes of hip-hop are reconstituted in Japan. And I think the reaction for a lot of Americans is to go, oh, wow, Japan's got a long way to go on its racism. But then I think about you know the work of a scholar like Du Bois in Black Reconstruction and meticulously looking at how white supremacy is encoded Throughout the United States and the structures of power in the United States, and I'm wondering, and this is a very weird question, and I'm not sure it works, but I want to ask it. When we look at these very flagrant examples of racism, of anti-blackness in Japan, of let's say blackface in a variety show sketch, or you know a quasi-minstrelism in hip hop, is that the same, or if we're, how do we, I guess? think of anti-blackness on the scale where in Japan it can be quite blatant but perhaps it's not structural versus a United States where you can have a black president but you know the men of color who are locked up in prison continues to increase along with uh, exponential rates of black poverty how how do you see this sort of dialectic or discussion with with other foreign students who study in Japan or from foreign scholars or from your own reflection of, you can, in fact, have very blatant examples of racism, but that racism is not necessarily structural the same way we might see in Western settler colonial nations like the United States.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot, actually. And and I, to be honest, I get <laughs> quite frustrated when I kind of see constant reporting mainly in English language uh, media or foreign media uh, talking about um, Japan as this land where blackness cannot be accepted, is is not understood or not accepted. And and it again, it paints Japan as this exceptional uh, country. Japan is uniquely um, ignorant or uniquely racist. Um, And I think that that's part of, again, that's part of how we um, depict Japan, right, in terms of what we were discussing earlier, Orientalism and and Japan being the other. I think that's part of that dynamic. And it's also part of that dynamic that um, it, again, One of the big problems, and this is something that I've really tried to address in in the class that I teach, and and hopefully we've been able to cover some of those areas in this discussion, is that by focusing on these issues of race and representation, and this is something that um, William Bridges highlights in in his edited volume of Afro-Japanese cultural productions, we we often focus too much on these when when we're studying and looking at black japanese encounters people are quick to yeah focus on these issues of race and representation rather than looking at exchange um or solidarity um and so we tend to hide those areas and then come to conclusions that uh japan and blackness or, or black populations are the ultimate others. They, these are mutually exclusive categories and uh, never the twain shall meet um, type of dynamic. And I think that's really one of the um, the big challenges that I find or, or, or the big issues that I find with um, this. Uh, and I think, like I said, the English language media is a great example of this, of this uh, way of presenting japan as uniquely um racist in the way it it, or ignorant in the way it depicts black people in relation to for example um like you said these instances of uh, blackface in the media um, or uh what was the other recent? oh yeah in around the black lives matters protests last year you had nhk the sekai no ima world or the the world now news show um, clumsily depict uh, black protesters using kind of these stereotypical caricatures Um, and so we tend to highlight and focus on those issues rather than some other areas which um, we touched upon earlier Um, if you look at for example um, there's this uh, really popular youtube channel called the black experience in, in Japan and I've had a chance to interview uh, the the founder of this he's interviewed over 200 um black people living in Japan and across Asia and one of the key themes that he consistently finds across these interviews is this admiration for Japan this feeling of they can come people can come to Japan um and be free from um institutional racism because in japan you are just another foreigner so you're seen as a western foreigner um, and sometimes even being a western foreigner if indeed you are a black person from the west that is you can even gain privileges from this by being associated with um, i guess the uk in my case or america or, or european countries um, and so there's this very different view of japan Um, that, and and obviously that doesn't discount the fact that some people may feel um, uh, like hurt or um, aggrieved at the fact that there are these instances in the media, but in terms of the daily life um, affecting opportunities for careers and different things like that, I I think um, in some areas, um, Japan... Um, is seen as being distinct and separate from uh, a separate place from um, the the west where some of those um, rules of of institutional racism or unconscious bias and in different areas like that still still heavily apply and uh, seem to um, hold um, certain um, populations. Uh, down from getting ahead you can potentially put it like that so yeah hopefully that kind of starts to uh, unravel some of those things that you that you were mentioning
0: the the sort of surprise question I have is I've been thinking a lot about the term maroonage quite a bit which has long as ex- existed in black scholarship I was introduced to it primarily through the imprisoned uh, scholar Russell Maroon Schultz uh, via Vicky Osterweil, who wrote the book in defense of looting but I uh, I, I believe uh, the scholar Joy James from uh, Williams College, who is up there in the pantheon of, of uh, uh, Angela Davis and Sadia uh, Hartman and other brilliant black uh, female scholars, has also started to explore this much more explicitly and, and throughout her scholarship has as well. So Maronage is basically this idea of, of uh, running away from like, the state's processes of racialization. So during the United States, uh, during slavery, um, indentured white servants, um, indigenous peoples who were um, in the way of settler genocide, uh, and uh, black and African slaves would flee to areas that were unoccupied by the states, um, oftentimes because they were very difficult to manage territorially, so swamps, heavily wooded areas, and so on. And uh, though these areas and these potential solidarities were ultimately destroyed for very brief periods of history, they offered potential for what race might look like outside of the framework of a state, uh, what culture might look like outside of the technologies of racism and, ide- and management of identity that the state tries to impose on all of us. Um, I'm Armenian American, and Armenians have an absurdly complicated history Uh, that I don't know is marronage, but it's it's one of the few countries where the diaspora is bigger than the population of the homeland. So um, I I wanted to ask, we've talked a lot about sort of Orientalism and a band came to mind for me that clicks with some of the other examples of popular presentations of blackness in Japan. So things like Afro Samurai uh, would be, I think, one of the main examples, but that would be the Wu-Tang Clan. The Wu Tang clan, incredibly orientalist, like f- fucking ridiculous, like could not exist today. But I think for many uh, black and Asians who adore them as a band, they offered a great example of sort of cultural maroonage from below. So that's a long winded way of sort of asking how can we have, the, where in Japan culturally do, do we see currently sort of, or broadly speaking, where do we see Orientalism or Marunage potentially offering ways forward for these questions of solidarity? And how is it important to sort of let these things build themselves, even at the time they may, you know, they may appear as sort of ridiculous as the Wu Tang clan. It's Orientalism seems to somehow create more solidarity than it destroys. And I, I don't understand how it does that. But I'm wondering some of these examples of cultural marinage or what thoughts you could pull out from that um, from that question slash statement.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. And I, and I actually I'm going to use that um, cultural marinage in an in a essay that I'm currently um, writing on this very topic. Um, unfortunately, I can't really share too many of the details because <laughs> it's not published yet, but hopefully I can share that with you um, it, coming up very soon. Um, which is going to but just to kind of give you a hint as to the types of discussions i'm going to be having in that article um i'm going to be looking at black uh popular music in the uk and how it has um i guess you could use the word appropriated but potentially we can say it's referred it's taken cultural references um from or cues from Japanese popular culture in order to construct this genre so whether in terms of its sounds um, or lyrical references um, and those Japanese sources are being used to critique society in Britain, um, racial inequalities, socioeconomic economic inequalities um, and also for them to um, imagine a space outside of their own um, existence in in urban Britain as well. So that's just kind of a sneak preview of what I'm gonna be talking about um, in in this essay. But I think you um, correctly point out in this, uh, and I think the example of the uh, Wu-Tang Clan is really instructive in that sense. Obviously, they originally looked towards um, the Kung Fu movies. Um, Was it like the 36 Chambers um, and others? And then incorporated that into their ideas of becoming lyrical um, masters, um, gaining discipline in their life and also being able to battle the system uh, as well through um, becoming a master of your own sphere. Uh, and I think looking at the Wu-Tang Clan, I mean, if you look at um, Rizza's book, The Tower of Wu, he also mentioned how anime and manga features into this as well. And so he, he often refers to Dragon Ball Z um, as something that he finds empowering because it's a story of... Um, uh, uh Son Goku who is from this um this super saiyan race that he needs to, to kind of tap into that knowledge and power something that's been hidden from him but when he taps into that knowledge and power he can then um uh, he can then was it power up into into a super saiyan and, and release these this energy and and that's what he, and he likens that to the black experience of history being hidden or rubbed out but when you tap into that knowledge source uh then you can level up um and power up uh like a super saiyan and he talks of um an afro being um the the spiky uh yellow head <laughs> of a super saiyan, super saiyan um and so I think you've really um, identified kind of a key, um, a, a key trend that we see. Um, and, and I think it, again, links to what we were talking about earlier in the early 20th, 20th century with figures like W. B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey and others talking about Japan or Asia um, as a model. And I guess kind of looking outside of yourself In order to challenge um, internal domestic um, issues, and I I mean, just some musings that potentially you could, uh, that potentially that I'm, I'm, or musings that I'm having on this, is that a lot of the stereotypes around, for example, blackness, are related. That, that black people have also internalized are related to maybe hyperphysicality um, and uh, hypersexuality, whereas often um, Asians are positioned on the complete opposite of that scale, so it's more about maybe s- spirituality and not being rational um, like, uh <laughs> like the West. Um, Or it's about um, kind of being very stoic, um, committed and disciplined in, I mean, in today's world, it's the model minority um, type of image. But I think part of it, what you talked about earlier of kind of this embrace of Orientalism, I think it could also be seen as this embrace of those different qualities that Black people are often denied, i.e. that um, spirituality, that discipline. And I think a lot of those qualities are really expressed in, for example, Kung Fu. And, 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 and I think that's areas that the Wu-Tang Clan, as you mentioned, have been able to bring into that sphere of rap music. Um, and I think those types of qualities are again, expressed in various forms such as anime and manga, especially Dragon Ball Z, Naruto, which again, if you kind of look online in online discussions, you see lots of, um, lots of, especially black males, really fascinated by the stories of Naruto and, 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 and growth and tapping into um, different aspects of yourself. Um, So I I think that would be one area that I would um, focus on is what are the qualities specifically that um, these various black populations are trying to um, embrace or attribute to themselves through um, engaging with Asian culture or, or Orientalism.
0: And it's, it's really an interesting uh, dialogue in the sense of, and this leads to our last question, and then I'll let you uh, get back to your, uh, your life in, in Tokyo. But uh, it's so fascinating to think about um, that these are connections that, to be honest, I think would not be accepted by the academy, would not be accepted by either black leaders or Asian leaders, and you can already tell from the subtext of this interview, I am not a fan of cultural leaders. Of, uh, I'm not a fan of leaders, period, if you know, if you've read my interview with, with, uh, with uh, Shokanishi. Um, but it's, it's really fascinating to think that these connections of like a Wu-Tang Clan uh, to, to, let's say, a Dragon Ball Z or for uh, uh, a global black diaspora to Naruto, if they came through sort of state-managed or through the academy, they would be accused of Orientalism, in most likely, or, or some form of cultural appropriation. But instead, in this sort of cultural maroonage space of people educating themselves, they're able to sort of build solidarity connections and, and a better sense of self-identity. Um, and Uh, feel free to add anything to that you'd like, but this last question I'd like to ask, we are starting to see an emerging Afro-Japanese, maybe elite is the wrong word, because they're not necessarily connected to statecraft, but they are global faces. Naomi Osaka, Roy Hachimura, who's, he's developing his three, so he might be a star, Uh, and Ariana Mamiko Miyamoto, who's a former Afro-Japanese Miss Universe. Now, I don't believe in trickle-down economics, and I don't believe in trickle-down cultural change. Uh, I, I only believe in sort of the economics of, of a socialism or a communism, and I feel the same way about culture. But you're my guest, and you obviously have thought about these things very deeply. What have your thoughts been about the introduction of sort of an Afro-Japanese elite into how blackness has, has changed in the public perception of Japan, and for... Uh, black immigrants, uh, Afro-Japanese minorities, and others who who do not have the global fame of a Naomi Osaka or a Rui Hachimura, do they see the same benefits that these Afro-Japanese uh, global faces do, or does that do those benefits not just like I don't believe they would economically? Do they not trickle down? to the uh, Afro-Japanese communities or black immigrant communities of Japan?
1: Yeah, that's a really um, tough and important question. Um, uh, and as you say, I mean, I think maybe not black elite is, is or or an elite is p- perhaps not the best way of um, uh, describing them. But I guess, like you said earlier, maybe cultural leaders, um, I think they're definitely within that space, now, I mean, Osaka um and other figures and i think the first thing i would point out in relation to them is that again it's in it's within these fields that is to a certain extent extent expected of them ie because of the fact that they're phenotypically black it's expected that they would be good at sports or be good entertainers um and again playing into these stereotypical images of blackness that you're kind of innately or born with these um these physical aspects or i guess this perceived physical superiority in these areas um they are often what i would say about if you look in japanese society um where a lot of black japanese uh, or or mixed heritage um, people are excelling, it's within these spaces, sports, music, entertainment. And I, and I felt, I've, I, sometimes I feel a bit uncomfortable about that, because then it does lead into questions, like you said, does this trickle down to the rest of the population? Because if your only role models are within those spaces, what about in, as politicians or business leaders, um, or, or, or in, in just kind of society more, more generally? What about these role models? Um, but in interesting conversations, so I had an opportunity to um, invite um Aisha Tochigi, who's the latest um, Miss Universe Japan, um, so she uh, won in 2020. And I asked her about this question. I posed this challenging to question challenging question to her: Is she not playing into these? stereotypical images of blackness by um, going into this competition or, um, I guess, being a model rather than um, looking to make an impact in other spaces. Um, But then she pushed back, and, and, and I think it was a really good point, that she talked about how she was using this as a form of empowerment and a way to assert her identity, so by um, going into this position, representing obviously winning so and representing Japan in this competition, she's now able to challenge people to question their ideas of Japaneseness or what is japanese what is a Japanese ideal of um, beauty? Um, who can be japanese and again, just purely from the fact that she is representing Japan. And I think that's something that Naomi Osaka has obviously been very successful in. She's um, someone who now represents Japan, and so she's going to have a lot of um, the public behind her and supporting her as the Japanese, um, as a Japanese tennis star. And now, more generally, it, it forces uh, the public to question, well, um and and there's there has been lots of debate around it is is this person truly Japanese and so it it is starting a conversation in society I think that's where we're at at the moment I, I don't think more broadly it has necessarily made big changes in relation to some of those um I guess struggles of um unconscious bias that some student uh, young people may receive or, or older people may receive or um again acceptance in broader fields like business or politics we haven't really seen that yet but at least in um becoming these cultural leaders and stimulating discussions. I think they have—they're uh, they're really having a big impact. And just to use one more example of that, um, now in Osaka in the U.S. Open last year. I mean, this is a wearing the masks um, in support of Black Lives Matters, with the the names of the different individuals or prominent individuals, individuals who have been uh, who were murdered by the police. She forced the Japanese uh, media to uh, discuss that because they're discussing her tennis victories um, in support of the Japanese representative, but at the same time, um, she's bringing that into um, the public discourse. So I think I, think I would say that's the um, biggest change and impact uh, that they're having.